The Mojo Radio Show. We scour the planet to find the biggest names in health, creativity, wellness, strategy, brand, performance, management, and more. Turn this up. This is going to be crazy. This is Jason Overcome Redman. Hey, I'm Dave Acosta. Hi, this is Cal Newport, author of Deep Work. G'day, this is Ryan Park. I'm Batman. This is Ivan Davies from my town. I'm Andrea Burke from the Canadian National Women's Rugby Team. And Lucas speaking deep. This is Tate Fletcher, Cage Fighter. This is the Mojo Radio Show, where I'll be coming to see you. Then we ask them the big questions. Oh, man, this is such a great question. You've actually landed right on the mark. That's a, another really good question. It's great talking to some clever dudes, frankly. I've gone probably a little bit more in-depth with you than, uh, than I have in the book. I've done, like, 500 interviews, but nobody asked me about this. <laughs> oh, wow. And sometimes we talk about darts. There we go. Can I tell you, Dina, Gary's favourite sport is darts. How athletic is that? I think it's uh, interesting that it's your favourite, but I won't be judgmental. (laughs) Look, it's the only sport that I know of where a prerequisite is a pint of beer and a cigarette. Come on, let's be honest. The Mojo Radio Show. We don't take ourselves too seriously. So you try throwing half a dozen darts in a row and just see how you go, Uh, my friend. But we hope you will. Welcome. I got my book. To the Mojo Radio Show. Hey, everybody, and welcome to season seven on the Mojo Radio Show. Season seven, ready to rock and roll. Is everybody on board the bus? AP. Afternoon, chaps. Nice to be here, of course. So you've taken up station at the back of the bus, as per usual, as per the last six seasons. Uh, Lola, you in the house? Hello, boys. Sounding as sassy as ever and the driver of the big red bus looking a bit larger with the Christmas pudding uh, Robbo welcome back the Christmas ham actually I had my own this year did you try that chilli bomb sauce that he sent through for the I did. summer speaking of Christmas lunch I actually hand on my heart had it on my Christmas ham it was beautiful holy hell it's got some mm. kick to it it did luckily the pool was right behind me man that had some fire in the belly I must say uh the other thing that kept me going through the Christmas period on the fire ground doing a lot of overnight deployments in the wee hours of the morning was revies. Dip into your, into your oh, pack, you. pull out a revies, uh, get you through until dawn till the coffee cart arrives. Yeah, indeed. Absolutely. Yeah, they, uh, well, I think we've spoken about that, the, uh, the sta- staple diet of the Withered Oaks. <laughs> <laughs> the Withered Oaks chafing up again this year? Yeah, we're up again this year. It's all happening. My God, another year, another year, another wheelchair. Only about another six weeks and we're on. To kick us off, uh, bus is in gear. It's out of the shed, ready to rock and roll. Remarkable fact. Robbo's Remarkable Facts. Let's go. Remarkable facts slash book review. I actually did something useful with my holidays this year. Um, I picked up a actually, book. Wait, wait. A remarkable fact, would you actually reading a book? That Congratulations. <laughs> we, we can actually stop the segment right there because that is remarkable, the fact you read a book. Did you finish yeah. it or just got yeah, the first couple of chapters? I did. And actually even more remarkably is it might be a book that you know about. I don't know. Um, it's by a guy called Tom Corley, C-O-R-L-E-Y, and it's called Change Your Habits, Change Your Life. Where no, of that book? Not. Okay. So what Tom did is he surveyed 233 self-made millionaires in the United States and compared their habits to 128 lower-earning individuals, people who earned around 35000 a year or so in America, just to sort of get an idea of what was the difference between these people who, you know, made a million and those who didn't. So these, are, these were some of his findings that I've scribbled down. Uh, firstly, one that you'll appreciate, they get up early. Nearly 50% of the uh, millionaires got out of bed at least three hours before their workday started. 
Second one was they read a lot. 88% of his wealthy respondents devote at least 30 minutes a day to self-education. The third one, they spend 15 to 30 minutes each day focused on thinking. They make exercise a priority. They spend time with people who inspire them. And one of his quotes, which I actually liked by you, is only as successful as those you frequently associate with. Uh, and six, they pursue their own goals. He says most self-made millionaires plan to get rich and then make it happen. And they get enough sleep. So uh, we all know about that. There's no secret there. And the last one, which, I, which is another good one, is they all have multiple incomes. The average was three income streams before they became millionaires. So um, that, was, uh, that was a couple of nights were well spent, I thought. Nice. Good, good book summary. Remarkable. The Mojo Radio Show. So today's guest I have been chasing for six years. <laughs> and I still remember I was on holidays on an island by the pool, finished this guy's book. And after finishing it, at the very end of the book, he, he'd actually dropped in his email address and said, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Please contact me. His name is Derek Sivers. He wrote a book called Anything You Want. I really liked the book. It is one of the books that I read again each year. To his credit, I wrote to Derek some six six seasons ago. He was one of the very first guests I ever wrote to, and he replied. And he said, I'm programming. Now's not a good time. I'm completely focused on this. I'm not doing anything. Keep in touch. And then I wrote to him each year, probably two, two or three times a year to say, is now a good time? And he always wrote back and said, now's not a good time. Then he wrote and he'd done a brand new book. In fact, he'd done three new books. And I wrote to him to say, would you like to talk about the books? He said, no, I wouldn't like to talk about the books because I don't like coming on shows to promote and blow my own trumpet, but I will come on your show. So this show was literally six years in the making. And I've got to say, we kept this show back to start season seven because it is quite special. It is about resilience, persistence, because those things can show themselves in lots of different ways, not just a sporting field or on the business boardroom table. So without further ado, would you please welcome Mr. Derek Sivers to the Mojo Radio Show. Thanks for the call. When people Google you, Tim Ferriss, Ryan Holiday, Simon Sinek, are the names that come up around you. What do you think you guys all have in common? Probably an aim to keep doing things in the public eye. I've found that to be a difference when I was living in New Zealand. It was very easy there to just turn inward, do things for myself. And I saw a difference between my between that and my previous focus of constantly doing things for the public, in the public, keeping it out in the public eye, like trying to get a broad reach to what I'm doing. And I think it takes an extra effort to like put your ass on the public line instead of just your your private achievements. You know, it's like you're putting yourself out there for critique more. So it's it's a bit of a pain. Like I I don't completely enjoy it. <laughs> but it <laughs> seems to be it seems to be worth it. You know what I mean? Like it's that's the difference between just being a private success to yourself and being more of a public success. In what you do, what's interesting is you, you have said that you have a lack of interest in the existing game. Where, where does this stem from 
for you, Derek. What is this desire to not play the existing game that the majority want to play, yet the majority don't want to? Where where's that come from? Where's it stem from? I can think of two things. For one, I think you remember my background that really shaped me was in the music business. So from the age of 14 years old, I wanted to be a famous rock star, at least a successful musician. And so my heroes were people like Prince, um, Miles Davis, but even like watching long careers of people like David Bowie, uh, whatever. They, They were people that always would do things differently from what everyone else was doing. And that was like the strategy to success in the entertainment world is usually to do the opposite of what everyone else is doing. If you do what everyone else is doing, then you're like yet another one of those little names that passes by on the radio that just sounds exactly... They're they're the innovators, then they're the followers, right? And if you want to be an innovator, if you really want to call attention to yourself and do something cool that people pay attention to, then you look at what the rest of the world is doing and you do the opposite. So that's part of it. But then it also comes from the fact that I've just been happy since like the mid-late 90s. I've just been happy with where I'm at in life. Like I've I kind of ticked off most of my boxes for what I wanted out of life by the, by the mid-late 90s. Like I, I achieved it. <laughs> so everything after that just feels like it's kind of lighthearted. It's kind of, you know, I was going to say gravy, but you know what the saying is, whatever. It's like, I'm good. Everything else is just dessert. So I don't need to do anything I don't want to do. Right. So I look around at what I don't like about the world and I don't do it. You know, like I don't, I've never liked TV. I'm not going to watch TV just to, so I can chat at the water cooler about Game of Thrones. You know, fuck that. I'd rather reclaim that 300 hours of my life or whatever it is. Um, and uh yeah same with you know people who are all into instagram or whatever i just look at that and i go no that just that looks kind of doesn't look like fun to me it looks kind of disgusting so i won't do it there were there's a couple of stories that i want to recount with you about people and kind of people and circumstance that shaped you just word use the word who shaped who you are and i just want you to talk to about the circus and what the the circus taught you early on in your when you're starting out in life in work and business. Take us back to that time in the circus and and the greatest lesson you learned from that time. When I was 18 years old, I got a call <clears throat> from a booking agent. I was living in Boston. I was going to Berkeley College of Music in Boston, and it was just a random call I got uh, to do a gig. It was like my very first paying gig ever. It was uh, somebody was off, a booking agent called offering $75 to play at a pig show in Vermont. And it was my first paying gig. I was 18 years old. I was like, hell yeah, paying gig. All right. And it's like, even though it was like a $50 round trip bus ticket to get to the gig and back. Uh, and it was an all day thing. So, you know, you'd say like all day. All day to make $25 doesn't sound like a good deal, but I was psyched because it was my first paying gig. So yeah, I went went to a pig show in Vermont and played for a few hours and came home. 
And so that's how I got hired to play at the circus is because that booking agent that booked me um, also ran a circus. So it was just something that kind of plopped into my lap. I, um, but yeah, two interesting lessons came out of that. The first one was, uh, I'll call it the, I, I prepared some thoughts before our call, um, thinking about the subject of your show and why people listen to the show. And I made what I call the mojo lessons. So mojo lesson here <laughs> is about overacting. So in the circus, uh, I, when I first started the gig, uh, they needed me to be, be not just the musician, but also like the ringleader MC. So I'd get up there on stage and I'd go, uh, hey, everybody, um, you know, welcome to the circus. I, I hope you like the show today. Uh, we're about to begin. And I'd go backstage and they'd say, no, you need to be more sensational. You're being too casual. So I'd get up on stage the next time and go, uh, hey, everybody, welcome to the circus. I hope you like it. And I'd go backstage and they'd say, no, be more sensational. Be more entertaining. Come on. You're the ringleader. You're the MC." And so I went up there kind of aggressively, rebelliously, um, kind of like to, to go over the top, go, I'll show them. But it was done, I, I meant to go too far. Let's go, I, I, you know what I mean? Like I did it to punish. You know that thing you do ever since you're a little kid when somebody just do something and you kind of, in anger, you do it over the top? So I went up there and I said, ladies and gentlemen, what you're about to see is one of the most sensational things you've ever seen in your life. We're about to have um, dolphins coming out of the sky. We're going to have bears coming, jumping through hoops. You're going to see this and that. Ready for the circus! And I went backstage and they said, there! Now that's what we want. It worked. Um, and it was great. So from that day on, like that became my stage persona. It was like this overacting, over-the-top uh, version of fake it till you make it, right? Then years later, I was playing guitar for a Japanese pop star, uh, Ryuichi Sakamoto. I had moved to New York City and and um, got this random gig offered to me. And I said, yes. So I went to Japan playing guitar for uh, this guy that's like the Peter Gabriel of Japan. And this was the opposite, where they put us in these uh, black Armani suits. No, not Armani. What's it? Uh, I forget the designer's name. Um, and uh, I would get up there on stage and I loved this guy's music. So I'm up st on stage in front of 10,000 people playing guitar and I'd go backstage and they'd say, uh, you are moving too much. Could you please try to stay still? <laughs> and I'd say, okay. And I'd get up on stage the next day and I'd, I'd be a little more still and they'd, they'd say backstage afterwards, like, no, we need you to be much more still. And so once again, I went, I, I did the overacting. I went over the top, like, I'll show them. I'm going to be a fucking statue. I'm going to be absolutely still. Well, that'll show them. And I went on stage and I just like did not move. I like just played my guitar and didn't move an inch. And I went backstage and they said, there, thank you. That is exactly what we want. I was like, oh, all right. But it feels like there's a life lesson in here like we've all heard the fake it till you make it advice but i think sometimes if you really want something and you're just not getting the results uh, try overacting this is interesting and i'm going to take a little off ramp here because you just use the word stage persona 
And I've heard you quote Kurt Vonnegut, who said, you are what you pretend to be. When you think today, Derek, of your own persona today, based on that quote, what are you pretending to be today? Nobody's ever asked me this. This is, um, there's a funny thing among famous people, which is your last name. If you use the full version of your name, that is your famous self. And then when you're just among friends, you only use your first name or your nickname, right? Um, so fr- like I'm friends with Tim Ferriss, and, for example. And so people joke when you're w- with him, it's like, oh, look, Tim Ferriss says <laughs> I should do this. And it's like when you say the last name, <laughs> you're referring to the public persona. And I think that's a really – ideally – I think that everybody, I wish that everybody had a, um, like a stage name, you know, like Bono's, Bono from U2, I think his real name is Paul Husen or something. So if somebody calls him Bono, he knows that they're referring to the public persona he's created. And that has two advantages. Um, for one, if somebody attacks the public persona, so it's like, ah, oh, Bono's just full of himself. He's a blowhard. He's a, and it's like, they're not talking about Paul. They're talking about Bono. So it's like, all right, somebody can attack it all you want. And it's it's as if you drew a drawing of something and somebody's attacking your drawing. You know, it's, it's not you. It's something you made. But then it also works for compliments and praise. It helps you from getting too full of yourself. Because if somebody is saying, oh, my God, Bono's a genius. Bono's like modern-day savior. And it's like, oh, okay, they're still praising the drawing you made. It's not the real you. So it's a separation. So I, I wish that we all had stage name. It's actually um, advice. My kid's only seven years old, but it just came up last year. It's like for the very first time he was about to create some kind of uh, a public profile on, I think, like a Minecraft thing or whatever. And I said, well, it's time to make up your internet name then. He said, internet name? <laughs> I said, yeah, you got to make up what is your... What is your internet name going to be? Gonna be? Cuz it's not your real name. Um you got to make up what name you're going to be on the internet. And I just gave gave him this as just like a fact of life. Well, there's your internet name. And um so he made up an internet name. And uh yeah, I think we all should do that if you're going to do something in the public eye, like make up a name for it and so that so then that public persona can be whatever you want. Like who knows, you know those people that are like public jerks. Like um I've never seen the show, but it, w- w- there's a cook, right? There's like a Gordon Ramsay. Is that his name? I've never seen the show, but I think like, it, isn't his whole thing like he goes and like attacks people in the kitchen and just is a raging jerk to them. So who knows if he's like that in real life or maybe he's like a sweetheart that just crafted this public persona because he knows that people tune in to watch people being jerks. And so, yeah, I think you can craft your public self. I, there's an interesting book about this. Um, so I've kind of felt this for years, again, maybe because of my background in music, but just earlier, uh, I think in 2018 or 2019, um, a book came out called The Alter Ego Effect that was surprisingly good. And it was about how to apply this way of thinking to everyday life. The author found that, um, I think he's like a coach to many athletes. And, um, he found that a lot of athletes kind of have an alter ego that they think of 
when they're about to go out on the field or whatever they say, like they're back in the locker room, they're saying, okay, it's time for the, uh, time for the tiger ninja to come out or whatever. Like they have these code names for their, (laughs) their performing self. And then he found that some executives have this too. It's like, okay, here goes the deal maker. Deal makers going into action or, you know, they make these, uh, code names for themselves to, you know, so anyway, I think there's something, it's a really interesting subject. Sorry, I did, by the way, you're right. I, I did accidentally do that thing where you asked me one question I, and I answered a related question. So all that stuff I just said was more about alter ego than it was about the Kurt Vonnegut kind of becoming what you pretend to be. Because you're right, that's a, that is a different thing that if you really want to become something, there is the, the classic fake it till you make it or acting like something until you become that something. So sorry, I, I didn't really answer your question directly. It was still a damn good answer, though. I have <laughs> no, it was still say. gold. It was still gold. We'll take it. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but we'll what's interesting is that what Todd talks about is that, and I think there's something with you, if you look at the creating an online name that your son adopts online for that game and so on, what he talks about is it's got to be a part of you and not the whole of you. Right. And he does talk about that fake it till you make it where people it's actually not that it's actually knowing it's an identity you step into to create the values and the persona you would like to use to go beyond perceived barriers do you do you have an alter ego today in Derek's world is there a character a person a persona an animal a a piece of music that you step into when you need to get beyond your own perceived barriers? Not like that. No, I don't really have the, um, you know, backstage, okay, here comes the Ninja Tiger kind of thing. But uh, (laughs) I have found that, for example, my writing, which is what most people know of me now, um, I have a very succinct, direct, style of writing that just appeals to me and then it so it kind of seems like my persona because most people just know me through my writing so i like being very succinct i don't want to put a sentence out into the world unless that sentence is really needed you know so i edit the hell out of everything i put out into the world um and so that makes me seem more um I don't know. Uh, God, there's a, there's probably a nice adjective I'm missing here somewhere, like the um, the sage-like. It probably makes me seem a little more sage-like <laughs> than I really am when you when I'm just sitting here talking in conversation and I get overexcited and tell these long-winded stories. <laughs> it's not very sage-like. So that I'd say that that's like a different persona. There's like my writing persona that really is me, but it's. It's focusing on a certain side of myself that's trying to be as succinct as possible. When I was writing to you and we have conversed over a number of years, there was a story you told of a music teacher that very early on impacted you. And I must have been, I had it in mind in staying in contact with you. And you were very gracious to say, yes, keep in contact. But I knew that this, this music teacher was resonating in my mind to know that you have to follow through. Tell me about meeting this music teacher, the lessons you got from it, and how that impacts your world of learning today. All right. The mojo lesson of this story <laughs> is the power of a different pace. Yes. 
So Kimo Williams, I was 18 years old, maybe even 17. Um, I was living in Chicago. I was about to go to Berkeley College of Music uh, in a few weeks. And I, it was like this, you know, summer holidays before beginning the new school year. And in Chicago, I saw a classified ad in the paper about music typesetting. And I had a question about it. So I called the phone number and the guy uh, said, uh, he, he answered my question. He goes, so uh, why do you want to know? And I said, well, I'm about to go to Berkeley College of Music. And, da, 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 da. and he said, Berkeley College of Music, huh? He said, I taught at Berkeley College of Music. You know, I've got a theory that I think, I think you can graduate that school in half the time it takes. Why don't you come by my studio tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. and let me see if I can show you a few things. <laughs> I said, great. And so I showed up at his studio at 9 a.m. the next morning. And apparently he'd forgotten. He, no, it wasn't that he'd forgotten that he said that. It's that he apparently he tells this to every young, ambitious musician that asks him questions. He says, show up at my studio at 9 a.m. tomorrow. And apparently I was the first one that ever had. So uh, he told this story years later, like at my, my wedding, that, uh, that he'd been saying this for years to students, but nobody ever shows up at 9 a.m. And so I showed up at 9 a.m., ready to learn. And he, so he kind of sized me up and said, all right, now look, <laughs> he said, he said, the world goes at the pace of the lowest common denominator. He said, especially schools, they have to teach the curricula in such a way so that nobody gets left behind. He said, but if you're smarter than the average, if you're more focused than the average, you can go so much faster than most people. He said, so I think that the stuff that Berkeley teaches you in four years I think you can learn it all in one or two years. Let's give it a try. Are you ready? I said, yeah. So he, he opened up this book of jazz standards and he said, okay, what is a major scale? I said, da, da, da. he said, okay, how do you build a, a chord off the second note of the major scale? I said, uh, D, F, A, C. He said, right. What kind of chord is that called? That's called a two minor chord. Okay. So what is the five chord then? I went, uh, G, B, D, F. Right. That's a five chord. Now, a resolution in jazz harmony is a two to the five to the one. Why does it resolve? Because you've got the tritone there in the five chord, don't you? I said, okay, yeah. He said, what is a tritone? I said, it's, it's this, this, it's dissonant. He said, right, it wants to resolve. Now, build another scale. Where else can you put the tritone into a seventh chord? I went, uh, uh, the, flat, the, D, the D flat seven. He said, right, that is called a substitute chord. Now, and he's like, go. Now make substitute chords for each one of the chords on this page. Go. I'm going to give you one minute. I went, uh, uh, and I was like, this intense pace. It was so amazing. I was like, it was, it was like learning music theory, but with the intensity of playing a video game or something. I was, it just had this adrenaline to it. I loved it. And we kept up like that for like three hours. And after three hours, I walked out of there at about noon, went back home. I was like, and it felt like what we know later from the, uh, the movie, The Matrix, you know, where they go like, they go like, hold on, I'm going to teach you how to fly a helicopter. It's like, got it. Now I know how to fly a helicopter. It's like, I learned so much in three hours. It like blew my mind. And I went back there for the following weeks, um, like my last three or four weeks before I began uh, Berkeley School of Music. And by the time I got to Berkeley, after only three or four or five lessons with Kimo Williams, sure enough, uh, on my entrance exams, uh, on my opening day of school, I tested out of four semesters of jazz harmony. 
uh, that stuff that I hadn't known a month ago. So yeah, four semesters, two full years of harmony classes I would have had to sit through to learn what chemo taught me in a few lessons. Um, so, but, so that's the, that's the story of what happened. And then the belief system it changed for me is that he just taught me this core theory that there's the standard pace that is meant to include everyone and leave nobody behind. But that doesn't apply to you. If you're, um, if you're more focused, more ambitious than most, you can go way faster than the norm. And the T-shirt that came from that that Tim Ferriss <laughs> wanted to produce is? The, the standard paces for chumps. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. God, that is just one of my favorite sayings of all time. I love you know that. The standard pace is for chumps. I, I, so does that mean go for go for seven seven eighths over four 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 or something like that? Is that what that means? <laughs> right, right, right. The music pace. Um, what's funny is yeah. after I said that story publicly, and then I went and tracked down chemo. I just hadn't talked to him in a couple of years, and I said, "Hey, man, I just told wow. the story of how we met." And uh, he he goes, standard paces for chumps. He said, I never said that word before. I never said that. I think you made that up. <laughs> uh, so apparently, as I Kid Rock would the- say, that'll be on a that'll be on a t shirt by Friday. Uh, <laughs> absolutely, Derek. Uh, it- Obviously, I, I love that story and I love that saying, and I I mention it to people and credit you often. When you got married. You only had three people at your wedding, an ex-girlfriend, which is curious, Kimo Williams, and another lady called Talton, who was the wife of the booking agent that we started this show with, the story you told about the circus. Tell me, tell me, Talton was a special person in your life. Tell me what Talton drew out of you as a man. So I was only 18, and she was probably 33. And yeah, she was my my boss or manager on the circus. So that it would mostly be like the other guys in the circus were asleep in the back of the truck, and uh, she would she and I would often be the two drivers. I've never been that into sleeping, so I would often be up front driving the truck with her. And so we just had hours and hours and hours and hours to talk for this is like like six years of my life. And um, so of course, being eighteen, I went through heartbreaky kind of things, uh, you know, got dumped a couple times and whatnot. So I'd be moaning to her about being dumped. And she just kept saying over and over again. And I think it's helped that the fact that she was super hot and, you know, this this older woman at 35 saying this kind of stuff made a difference. It's, she's like, Derek, I've been with dozens, maybe even hundreds of guys. <laughs> and she said, you are just you just blow everybody else out of the water. She said, you are just smarter. You're more considerate. You're sweeter. You're, um, you're just a better catch than like anybody out there. She's like, all these guys, like people just puff up themselves and this and that. She said, any girl that doesn't realize that you are just fucking amazing. That's her loss. And she just told me this sweet stuff for years. And like, I think, for the first year or two or three, I was just like, eh, well, thank you. I thought she was just trying to make me feel better. But after like three years of her saying this stuff, I just noticed like it just kind of slowly sunk in and just changed my my self-image. So yeah, it just kind of sunk in. So after a few years, I think 
like next time I had some kind of breakup, like I really to the core felt like, oh, that's a that's a shame that she's gonna miss out on being with me. <laughs> you know, like I'm fucking awesome. And I just noticed that it was just it just felt like a truism to me. And when I tried to unravel that and wonder why did I think that, I think it's really just because of Tarleton uh telling me over and over and over again. Um Mojo lesson. It's okay to have somebody else assist in your self-image. I wonder where that that middle ground is because we've had alter ego has been alter ego or identity has been a thread through the show, which I've been really interested in for probably three seasons now. And going into our seventh season with this show, the other thing that we have heard a lot about, Derek, which I'd be curious on your perspective on, is one of the most important traits in leadership is humility. And I wonder in your mind, where's that fine line between, yeah, 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 I am awesome and humility. How, how do you see that, that place, that beautiful spot, right, sweet spot in the middle there between those two things? I haven't thought about this a lot, but I've thought about it a bit. And I think the difference is whether you look down on others or not. Like, you, don't, you can think I'm awesome without thinking you suck. <laughs> You know, so I think the, I think it's fine to be, um, as confident as can possibly be on Earth, as long as you're not looking down on others because of it. So I was thinking about the word smug. So we tend to think of smug as a completely negative word, but I think smug is actually a feeling of pride, meaning that you are living the life you want to live. You've been following your own best advice. You've been doing the right thing. You've been making the right choices. And now you're really happy with where you're at and who you are. To me, that feeling is smug. And it's a positive thing. And I asked some, a friend of mine about that. I said the same thing. I said, well, why is smug a bad thing? Like, why do we think it's negative. And, and my friend said, he thought about it for a second. He said, I think when, because it's assumed when you say smug, that you're looking down on others, that you think you're better than other people. I said, ah, there's the difference. Like if we just get rid of that, that secondary effect of looking down on others and just take the first half of it, those two don't have to be inseparable. Um, like, like somebody was talking about private, uh, sending their kid to a, a fancy, expensive private school or not. And he said, oh, I, don't want, I don't want my kid to be some kind of privileged asshole. And I said, you know, those two words don't have to go together. <laughs> Your kid can be privileged without being an asshole. It's not like everybody with privilege becomes an asshole. Why do we assume that there's this, that always going to be this dark side because that goes with this thing. So I, I like to separate those two things. So yeah, I think being smug is is a great thing, uh, as long as you don't look down on others. But being smug is a wonderful feeling of just like, yeah, I'm living according to my values. Like I'm living the life I want. Like this feels great. Um and same with confidence. I think you could be as confident as anybody in the world as long as you don't disrespect and look down on others. Derek, one of the values you seem just an observation, you seem to live by is a world of 
extraction or minimalism as opposed to adding more in. And the reason I bring it up is because you wrote a blog not long ago that said the adding mindset is deeply ingrained. It's easy to think I need something else. It's hard to look instead at what to remove. And we quite often quote Bruce Lee who said, it's not the daily increase, but the daily decrease. Hack away at the unessential. And I'm just, in your world with how you operate, your standard operating procedures, what have you hacked away at and or removed from your world in recent times, which has had an impact or a profound impact on you, your life, your family, your world, your health? What is there something you have removed and taken out that's made a difference? Let's look at productivity, for example, just trying to get more done in one day. Um, people often comb the internet looking for productivity hacks, looking for things they can do to be more productive. And, and I've done that too. Um, and over and over again, I have to catch myself when I realize I'm trying to like add some new morning routine or add some new, uh, way of, thinking about this or add some new technique to get things done better. But actually, why am I doing any of this? (laughs) Or this entire project or this whole secondary thing I'm doing, it's pretty secondary, isn't it? Like maybe instead of trying to get more productive at doing this thing, I should just say, sorry, I'm not going to do this anymore. Why did I agree to this? So it's, it's more of a constant reminder that that the solution uh, to things is not just always adding more things. That it's um, the, you, you kind of have to question when you find yourself trying to find a new way to do such and such. Um, it just even the the whole idea of like I need to find a new way or a new approach or a new philosophy or another book or whatever. Um, so like for example, uh, books. Um, Sometimes what you need the most is to stop reading new books. Like if you're thinking that, that there's some kind of information you need, uh, you're looking out there thinking, oh, I need, think I need another book. Maybe it's like stop reading new books for a year. Go back through the ones you've read in the past and try to apply what you've already learned, like all this information that's sitting in your head unused. Um Try to apply that or uh, let go of more of your goals, uh, for example. I mean, that's a okay, sorry. You, um, I realized I'm still kind of talking around things without asking directly. Here's a huge one. You asked for an example. Um, just a month ago, I gave away all my musical instruments and have officially closed that chapter in my life. I am no longer making music. And it's because I was almost every day looking at the piano over there and those two guitars hanging up on the wall, kind of kicking myself for not putting aside time to make music like I know I want to. Um, and I'd say, uh, God, I got it. You know, I got to get better at stopping my writing earlier, putting aside time to be, or I need to work on music before before I start my day with the other stuff, because it's just not happening otherwise. And I was kind of kicking myself daily. Like, how can I 
make more time to make music. This is something I really want to do. And yeah, then I just kind of looked at it again and I thought like, or maybe it's time to just let go of that goal. That's something we never talk about is, is letting go of goals as a good thing. We often just talk about goals as if they are something that must be achieved, do or die. Um, like once you've set a goal, you must find out how to achieve it. But I've, uh, the last few years, just really over and over again, been looking at old goals that I set, things that I really felt like I must achieve this, and just looking at it going, huh, or not. I could just let go of this entire thing. Would that be so bad? So yeah, I kind of just did a thought experiment with myself about, wow, what if I just got rid of all my musical instruments and just let go of that part of my life completely? And I was surprised that that thought didn't horrify me. I went, oh, that'd be kind of nice. A friend of mine, I'm living in Oxford, England now, and a friend of mine here is a full-time professional musician. I called him up. I said, Tom, <laughs> it's your lucky day. <laughs> you know that guitar of mine you love? It's yours. It's your you know lucky day. That I have? It's you. And he's like, oh my God, dude, I was just thinking about buying that keyboard because I like yours so much. I said, well, it's yours now. I just gave him all my stuff. And I was like, in fact, do you want these speakers too? He said, hell yeah. So uh, I just gave him everything. I was like, well, if I'm not using my room as a recording studio, I don't need these nice big speakers either. So it was just, it was so liberating. I just got rid of all that stuff. And now I'm just monomaniacal. I'm like completely focused on my one single goal. And I've just let go of all my secondary goals. Derek, earlier in the show, you told the story of the pig farm and the guy said, hey, do you want this gig? It's 25 bucks. You went, hell yeah. And you've become known as the hell yeah or no guy. And it's just such a, a, a simplistic but profound way to go about thinking and making decisions and what I'm interested in is we had Jason J. Redman, who is a US former US Navy SEAL who was shot in the face in Afghanistan very, very badly. And he was in hospital. And there's a famous sign that you can find on Google quite easily of Jason J. Redman that he hung on his door. And it said, don't enter this room with sympathy. I did what I wanted for a country I love, for a job that I did for... And he, and he wrote this story, which became very famous because one of the US presidents went, saw the sign and went to visit him in hospital. And he became the overcome guy. And during the show, he said there are times when he catches himself and he wants to give in or not do something or take the easy way. And he goes, well, oh, hang on a second. I'm the overcome guy. <laughs> I, I, all these people look to me, the overcome guy, get off the X. I, I'm the overcome guy. I, I had this identity. I can't let them down if I let myself down. Do you ever find that being the hell yeah or no guy, does that identity ever play in your decision-making? Again, I need to answer this sideways. It helps that I'm not <laughs> that famous. It's not like I'm going on TV every day being the hell yeah or no guy. But even if I was, I think it's more interesting to look at the things that you might even consider the absolute core of who you are and keep questioning those things and be ready to let go of them. Because there's some things that we decided like as teenagers, like this is who I am. 
And here we are, you know, 15 years later in your 30s, like still being that guy because you decided as a teenager that this is who you are. And I think you need to be willing to look at any of these things and try letting go of them and doing the opposite or just saying like, okay, well, that that was a goal that I, a goal or even a persona I adopted years ago. and. Maybe I don't need it anymore. Maybe that goal or that persona or that approach got me through that time in my life. But times change and people change. And um, I think it's more important uh, to constantly look at where you're at now, what your current goals are now, and who you need to be now or who you are now. Either who you are now and what beliefs you need to um, get you to where you want to be or, you know, who you need to be now to get where you want to be um, and acknowledge that those goals change. So uh, there's a wonderful book out there. I think it's Marshall Goldsmith um, years ago called What Got You Here Won't Get You There. And its core idea is uh, it was written to successful business executives saying the collection of tools that got you from nothing to being the head of a successful company are different tools than you need uh, to now get to the next level. Uh, to get to a certain level of success, you have to be selfish. Um, you have to focus more on yourself than others um, to get to the top of something, for example. Not for everybody, but for some people. Yeah, being selfish can can work well to get you to a certain height. But he said to get to the next level in your career, you need to reverse that now. You need to stop being the way you've been for decades and flip it around and and be more focused on others and be more of a team player and and um, be more of a listener than a talker, etc. Um, so yeah, it like say for example. Um, even in relationships uh, or let's say romance, love, whatever you want to call that stuff. <laughs> um, there might be a certain way you need to be to find the person that you want to be with. And once you find that person in, your, in a relationship, there's a different way of being that you need to be now. Like a different, you need to close that toolbox and put it away and open up a new toolbox that you've never used before in order to stay in the relationship and make it a great relationship. It's a whole different set of tools. So now, to going back to your question, do I feel the need uh, to be the hell yeah or no guy or does it shape my decisions? Uh, hell no. <laughs> Absolutely not. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm totally welcome. I, 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 I welcome myself or I allow myself to completely slough off anything I've done or said in the past because that was, that was then, this is now. I've heard you talk about this saying, which I think ties into where we've been the last few minutes. And it's a saying that I've heard mentioned with you and Tim and a few other people you've hung out with and done shows with, you said, easy choices, hard life. Hard choices, easy life. 
do you still do you still agree with that today? And if you do, do you have an actual example of a hard choice that you have made personally of recent times that you made that has led you to have an easier life? Um, yeah, I think that's that version of that quote doesn't work as well for me as the version that says um, to focus on the difference between is this what you want now or what you want most? I think of it that way. Like when I think of easy choices, hard life, that, that to me means like easy, present, hard future, <laughs> you know, uh, hard, present, easy future. Uh, for some reason that, that way of thinking about it works better for me. So, um, yeah, the, at any given moment, maybe like five or 10 times a day, I'm tempted to just go do the easy thing to just, um, stop writing my book and just go relax and just call a friend or go eat a donut or (laughs) whatever. And then I just kind of catch myself going, okay, what do I want most? That's what I want now. What do I want most? What I want most is to finish this book. And I just kind of like stand up, crack my knuckles, sit down again, keep writing. Um, That's one version. Uh, For me, I also had this, long-term goal of wanting to be more of a world citizen. Um, A lot of us Americans get trapped into uh, feeling that uh, America is the whole world. Um, Yes, we know there are some other little countries out there and they have very nice little Eiffel Towers and Sydney Opera Houses, but come on, this is the only real country. (laughs) A lot of Americans really feel that way, whether they say it that way or not. It's just like being surrounded by the Hollywood and the media that we're surrounded by and whatnot, it, it can really feel like America's the whole world. And I kind of like kind of shook myself out of that about the age of 40 after selling my company. And I said, God, I really, there's a big world out there. I want, I don't want to just see it as a visitor. I want to like integrate. I want to really attach myself to different parts of the world and feel it in my soul. Um, and that involves, um, some of those, uh, that involves being uncomfortable in the present moment to be comfortable in the long term. Uh, and there's a specific example I can point to, um, that I think back to when I was 20 years old and I moved to New York city, um, coming from like a little suburban town in Illinois and moving to New York city especially back in 1990, it was actually, it was really, it was, the city was more overwhelming then. Um, I actually found out very recently that the year I moved to New York City, crime was at an all-time high. Like it has never been that high before or since. And that's the year that I moved to New York. It was a really scary place. Like you really felt on edge walking through New York City. It, It felt dangerous. And coming from my safe little suburban upbringing, it was a scary place to move to. Um, so it was it was very uncomfortable. But then, within two years of you know meeting people, making friends, going about, going to events, and 
people's houses and parties around the city. Pretty soon, within two years, like that whole city is my comfort zone now. Like everywhere in New York City is just like, ah, this is my city. Like I know this well. This is my home. This is my comfort zone. And I think back and I think, how cool is that? That I went to this place that terrified me and now it's comfortable. And how cool would it be to do that over and over again? To like look at whatever place scares me and go there and stay until it becomes comfortable. Like Rio de Janeiro, that place scares me. It's terrifying. Like how cool would that be to move to to Rio and stay there a couple years until it actually feels like home. Like I, I know this city inside out. All my friends are here. I speak perfect Portuguese. How cool. Now let's move to Beijing and do it again. Uh, now let's move to uh, Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia or whatever it may be. How cool would that be as like a life's uh, uh, compass or uh, playbook to go wherever scares you and stay until it's comfortable and then by the end of your life, you know, you can look at the globe of the world and spin the globe and every place could feel like home. You know, you've got a circle of friends and all these places like that's a really cool idea. And then even if you don't feel like traveling the world, like even if that idea sounds kind of nice, but you don't want to live in Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia, well, then you can apply it metaphorically. You can look at what in your life scares you or what what ideas scare you or what approach to life scares you or doing what we look at your various goals in life and you think, well, which one scares me the most? That could be the one that you should be aiming towards. Um, because then you get that transformational thing of um, whatever scares you go do it. And soon it doesn't scare you anymore. What's really interesting about your world, Derek is and I, this is just something I'm curious about, and I just want to put a few things together here and get your view on it. But you said that you preferred talking on the phone to hanging out with people in person. We've talked about, and you're well known for your love of music and your history of music. You build a business on music. You've actually said you love voices, but then you hate noise because you don't like crowds, cities, bars, parties, streets, because they're too noisy. And you can't pick out one voice from another. When I read that, it seems you have a very strong auditory sense in that tone, sound is terribly important for you as a learning tool. Are you big on audio books? Because people quite often say, well, I don't really enjoy reading books, in which case they sort of back out of learning at all. But they haven't thought about their own preferences of how they learn best. It seems you're very auditory. And even when you tell stories, you tell with this melodic tone. Is your learning style when you are <laughs> taking in information, is it, is it in an auditory sense? Is that your strongest sense? That was a very, uh, that was a sweet question. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but no. <laughs> no, I find that for communicating, actually, let's just say for like heart stuff, I'm, more auditory for head stuff i like text like i mean meaning um i like books and in fact i actually prefer ebooks now because i i have my whole system with everything i'm reading i i take notes on and i save um clippings from it and i save it in text files and i put it into a database and i review it i've got a whole system for for 
taking in information and retaining it. Um, so because of that, nonfiction audiobooks don't work for me. But yes, if I'm going to read a novel, then I'd rather it be audio. Um, but it's actually, I don't, <laughs> sorry, I don't really listen to podcasts because of this fact that um, that anything I listen to feels quite fleeting. It kind of goes in one ear and out the other. Maybe a little bit of it sticks, but it's too ephemeral to me. Whereas if I really want to integrate something into my life, I really want to have it in text because I'm just a computer mm -hmm. nerd. I'm a programmer. I'm sitting on the mm -hmm. command line all day. Like if something's not in text form on my computer, it feels gone. Uh, so even if I do listen to a podcast and learn something in interesting from it, I have to immediately like go over to the computer and write it down. In, in text, otherwise it's just gone. It's really interesting. I wonder if there's something in there with learning styles which I've never, ever heard spoken about, that depending on the situation, and particularly if emotions come into it, whether you do tend to favour a different learning style. So for you, if it's something emotional, yes, I want to have that conversation, it's auditory. But if you are processing something technical or a learning environment, you prefer something in a written sense, which is more visual. So that, I find that interesting. I wonder what, wonder where there's, if there's something in that. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, my friends and I don't text each other. We don't email each other. We just call. Um, at best, maybe my friends will, you know, text to ask if I'm free. I, I just, yeah, just call me. Um, yeah, because I don't want to communicate by text. To me, that's like, yeah, that's that's for information. Not that's not an emotional connection. Um, and yeah, some people, uh, it's funny, I haven't really tried video courses very much. Like the, people that put together a really good like multimedia presentation where you're uh, watching, you know, like a Coursera or one of those things where you've got like a, somebody's really taken the time to put together something visually and not like a TED talk where you're just looking at somebody standing on stage talking. I hate those. <laughs> but the, uh, the ones where somebody puts together something really visual and can like, can show mathematical concepts in visual terms like that might be a really interesting way to learn maths for example would be if somebody could show it to you so it's not just an abstract concept but something you can see and you go ah yeah that makes more sense and uh yeah i haven't really experimented with that much but that would be interesting at the head of the show as i say in the business uh you mentioned the word still and then i read that you said about yourself, you thrive in solitude. What does what does solitude bring to you that you so greatly desire? A lack of friction. Uh, I think of obstacles, obstacles to my concentration and obstacles to my productivity. Um, in fact, I, I was thinking once about what home means to me what is home and to me home is the place without obstacles <laughs> that home is a place where it's just like i don't even have to think about my surroundings i can just focus on whatever i'm doing with zero obstacles i was like yeah that is that is what i want from home home is the place without obstacles um so solitude to me is uh the place where i can just do do what I'm doing, think what I'm thinking, be lost in thought or be lost in output, productivity and creating, writing, thinking, 
without any friction of having to interact with other people, communicate, you know, be understood, be considerate, <laughs> be empathetic. I think I, I just have that um, sensitivity where even if just somebody else is in the room or even in the building with me, I, I'm too aware of their presence and I feel a need to be considerate and it's like part of my brain is uh, being used up on my thoughts of whether I'm being a good uh, companion or host or whatever word, you know, another person (laughs) on earth for that person. I just don't want to think about any of that. In fact, God, this, this makes me sound a little crazy, but I actually tried having a dog earlier this year. In theory, I wanted a dog. I love dogs. It and I mean, like I love other people's dogs, and so I thought I really, in theory, I really want to have a dog. So I got a dog, and I just found that like part of me was my. It was like I was missing the solitude, even though it's just a dog. Like part of my brain was like always wanting to make uh. sure that he's happy. Make sure I hope he's all right. Like I hope he's not too bored. I wonder if he needs something more from me right now. Am I exercising him enough? <laughs> I was like, I can't do this. Like part of my brain's always like trying to make my dog happy. And so, um, my mom loved my dog so much. It was like her dream dog that she was thinking of getting. The exact same <laughs> have, have, have I was like, Oh, here, just take mine. So I, my mom adopted my dog. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, my mom adopted my dog and, uh, God, I love it so much more now. I mean, I thought Tim, but solitude to me is so uh, crucial. I really love like 12 hours per day of alone time. And that's where I get everything done. And once somebody else is around, just whether it's a part of me or all of me is just focused on the other. I'm going to go there in a second. Just before we do that, you just mentioned home, which is actually really interesting because you said that home can be that place without the friction. Yet when you actually look at where you've traveled and you've spent a few years in a number of places, Singapore, India, Belgium, New Zealand, England, Portugal. And you don't just go there to visit, you go there to become either a legal resident or a citizen of those places. And yet you've said each one feels like home in a way because you like to slowly expand your sense of home. So home must be a little more than just a place with no friction, where you can create and feel comfortable. So there must be something else that that environment travel brings to your sense of what home means and how it's different to what we commonly think of what home is. It actually fits in with my New York City story earlier, where what I want is to take things that used to be uncomfortable and make them comfortable. Um, so you could do it with your physical environment. Um, that's almost too obvious. You know, you can, you can rent a tiny crappy little apartment and then change it until it's the way you like it. You know, okay. Like now there's no breeze blowing through that window. Uh, now there's, I, I fixed the radiator, so it's not making that clangy noise, whatever it may be. But then in Emotionally or intellectually, there are places that seem confusing at first. Like when I first moved to Singapore, I was coming out of my time at 
CD Baby and the music business. And I'd meet a lot of people that would say, a lot of Singaporeans that would say, um, oh, I, I used to make music, but my parents really wanted me to be a lawyer. So I stopped making music and I'm just a lawyer now. And I'd say, no, that is so wrong. You must follow your dreams. It doesn't matter what they want. It matters what you want. You know, you've got to follow your individual passion in the world, blah, 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 blah. And I really felt this for probably my first you know, six to nine months or so. I really felt like they were wrong and I was right. And then it took me a while to really get to know my Singaporean friends and really spend some time there. And listen more than talk <laughs> before I finally understood the mindset of this kind of Confucian style of thinking, which is what you want is a fleeting thing that shouldn't be heeded. You, you do what's best for the group, um, the group meaning your immediate family or your neighborhood or your um, extended family or your country um you do what's best for the group and that is what's right and it's to me it almost related or it almost felt like um meditation when when people are meditating you have thoughts that come into your head and you just let them go right back out again you just say oh that's just a thought let it go and you just stay still um the confucian and therefore singaporean mindset that it took me a while to understand, for example, was that, yeah, these these passions, these things you want to do, you can just, they can come in and they can go right back out again, like passing thoughts. Like ultimately what's most important is doing what's best for, for the group, for the family. And now I don't think that's wrong anymore. Like now I understand it's just a different way of looking at something. And so now I have comfort in in that mindset or in that culture and it's no longer an obstacle uh, to my <laughs> tranquility or whatever you want to call it. I don't get upset <laughs> anymore. So yeah, and so you see that I that's that's me expanding my sense of home. So now Singapore is also my comfort zone. Um, I, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm a legally a permanent resident of Singapore. I own a home in Singapore. It's my comfort zone. It's, I still have more friends in Singapore than hardly anywhere else. And, uh, and I love it. Um, I'm very, very comfortable in Singapore. And how cool is that, that I got to expand my self-definition. And so ultimately, I mean, I, I'd like to keep doing that and make new places home and, and expand my, uh, expand the places that are home, which to me means no obstacles. So our show is, uh, it's all about the guests, but we also love our music. Rob and I used to work in a rock radio station together, so it's an important thing. And at the start of the show, you combined a number of things, and this is right up Robbo's laneway. You went Prince, Miles Davis, Bowie, you tell stories of Brian Eno, who worked with Talking Heads. You mentioned Bono and U2. You mentioned some of our favourite artists mm. that we play here in the studio. If I could play a song of your request that when I listened to the lyrics, it was the best song that represented Derek Sivers 
as a person, as a man, what song would I play that if I heard it went, yeah, that's that guy? I've never been into lyrics. It's funny that um, lyrics are an assumption. It's some of my favorite songs that I've listened to a hundred times for years. I still don't know what the lyrics are. <laughs> and, and there was like some, there was some Bjork song that I just love, and 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 I've loved that song for like oh, like fifteen years, twenty years, and I've listened to it so many times, and I just ran across the lyrics to it online, and I went, whoa, what? Really? That's what she said? Like, I had no idea. How weird. So to me, I think maybe because, okay, the relationship that a, muse, a musician has to music can sometimes be kind of twisted in the, in the same way that a programmer looks at computer code. Mm. Hey, remember that? Now I'm quoting the Matrix twice. Remember <laughs> the Matrix where it's like the guy sitting in front of the uh, the screen with all the little like green symbols going across it? He goes... Yeah, you know, I just see a woman in a red dress. <laughs> um, and so when I look at computer code, uh, because I'm a programmer, I can look at this stuff and it's like, oh, okay, it makes sense. I see what they're doing here. Whereas somebody else would just look at the you know, screen full of symbols. And music is a bit like that too, that I've learned almost too much about music theory so that often what I love about music can be like interesting little nuances about um what they're doing with the with the way that they arranged that chord for example they're spreading out the voices instead of doing a tight cluster or vice versa or um or the way that they're layering the rhythm say like oh god i love my favorite favorite thing in music is uh the combination of instruments and how uh, the arranger or the producer uh, combines instruments. I'm never so interested in an instrument on its own. Like when somebody's strumming a guitar, um, if somebody's strumming a guitar and singing, I'm not interested. But on the other hand, if you're combining like a, a flute with a harp and uh, a bass in some way that I've never heard before, like now you've got my attention. I love the the combination of instruments that I've never heard before. Well, let me throw this at you then, because this year, uh, coming from, as Gary said, coming from a rock and roll background, this year I've truly discovered jazz. Like I've always had it on as a background or something, but this year I've really sort of focused on it and discovered for a a myriad of reasons, I've discovered a love of jazz. And one of the artists you mentioned at the beginning of the show and, and Gary mentioned just then, a guy called Miles Davis. If, if there was a track in there or a track of his that made you stop and go, Wow, would would you be able to put your finger on one? Uh, the um, I'm playing it with my hand, but I, what is it called? The um, is it is it all blues? I think it's like track four or five from the the uh, the album Kind of Blue. Um, yes, Bill Evans like starts out with piano. He's, like, I'm doing this with my hand. Like, can you hear this? It's like it's beautiful. It is. You're right. Absolutely right, though. It's a great track. It's funny, I just, speaking of audiobooks, I just listened to my first audiobook in a year or two, which was Miles Davis's autobiography. Wow. I just finished that last nice. week. Um, and, um, yeah, anyway, it's it's funny when it, you know, speaking of music, it's funny if you go to a jazz club and you're sitting there with a few other people that, that understand jazz. And 
the person can be on stage soloing uh, and playing a solo, and suddenly, like, they may play something that's like two people in the club will like laugh at once because they get the inside joke of what that musician just did, and like the rest of the rest of the audience did again, but like two people in the room got that joke. So I, I feel a little bit like that with, especially when it comes to music production too. Like, they're, like say in the song um, "Closer" by Nine Inch Nails, I love the fact that as soon as the track starts, there's a little digital glitching underneath it. It goes like, it's a sizzle. There is a sizzle. Oh, really? I've never yeah, noticed. Check it out. The sizzle begins at the beginning. As soon as the kick and the snare come, it's like, but there's a sizzle underneath. And the sizzle stays there for the first almost minute of the song. And suddenly when it gets to the help me part, suddenly the sizzle disappears. And it's absence. So is it like a distorted kick and snare? No, no, no. Like they've copied it, de- copied it and distorted no, no, it? Or no. is it actually a digital glitch? It's actually, it's a, it's a, it's a sizzle. It's, it's like the sound of, of, of bacon on a frying pan. But it's very subtle. And as soon as, and as, soon as the, uh, the lyrics go, help me, the sizzle stops. And its absence is delicious. I love those kind of like those little tiny music production things. Like, so Derek Sivers, don't tell me you're not auditory. Don't tell me you're not auditory. <laughs> For you to pick up a little sizzle in there, don't ever to say, ah, oh, no, I'm not auditory, man. No, I. <laughs> see what happens when you put two audio guys in the room. See where the conversation goes. <laughs> this stuff is so much more interesting to me than than lyrics. I don't care about lyrics, but it's yeah, the the, the nuances of music. And I'm with you. And um, in fact, you know what? As long as we're on the subject, I'll tell one other tiny story. When I bought my apartment in Singapore, a friend of mine is an interior designer, and um, I said, you know what? you're my oldest friend, have a go at it. Why don't you go design my new home? So she went into the place and like did a whole bunch of visual things to it uh, that she felt was right. And then uh, I moved in. I spent my first night there. And everything she did visually was moot because uh, the windows were really noisy. (laughs) It's like, wait, no, the sound is all off. And I had to like, so she got so mad at me that I had to like I re- replaced her fancy little boutique windows with soundproof windows, and she said, "But it looks horrible." I said, "But it sounds great." Yeah, <laughs> Eric, I'm not going to uh, spend time going through what you're well known for, which has been well covered in different shows about the directives, the directives that you have written for how we should approach our life. And just to finish off, because I'm very conscious of your time. What I'd be really interested in knowing is what's the directive that you think is the most misunderstood yet if people embraced it would have probably one of the most profound impacts on them as people? I think um, I'm biased to the one that's, that's on my mind a lot now. Wait, sorry, you know what? I have to give the meta answer to this. I actually just recently found out that meta is the Greek word for about. I never knew that. I just took meta for example for granted, but meta means about. So I'm going to talk about that subject. Um, we often think, we often ask, like, you'll ask a stranger, what book do you think I should read? Or uh, what's something you would tell your younger self when you're 20 or whatever it is? Like, there are these it's a type of question 
that assumes there's a best answer for everybody. But um, I don't think there is one bit of wisdom that I think the world should know because just everybody's in a different place at a different time. And it kind of come back, comes back to something I said an hour ago about letting go of your old goals and even your old persona, your old beliefs, things that you might have formed years ago, maybe on a whim because of circumstances at the time, and now you're still holding on to it because you've defined that this is who you are. Um, I think we need to acknowledge that those things change, that we need different tools for different times, uh, different beliefs for different phases in our life. We need to let go of the old ones, even let go of goals that we made um, that aren't serving us. Um, so I don't think there is a one thing for everybody unless you want to count that as my meta thing about um, letting go of old beliefs, old goals, um, constantly questioning them, and letting yourself uh, slough them off and walk away from them with no loyalty to your previous proclamations even if you've announced it to the whole world this is who i am and this is what i believe that's if you are in a different phase now and change your mind you should loudly say like <laughs> i've changed my mind <laughs> you know we i don't know why people don't do that more often we feel like we need to be consistent for some stupid reason we need to be loyal to what we've said in the past but um no i'm constantly disloyal to everything i've ever said and done derek i've been looking forward to this for it's fair to say. Gary, you've been talking about it for years, let's be honest. <laughs> and we made it happen. You've been very, very gracious with your time. We have gone way over time. But honestly, I've got another page of stuff that I wanted to ask you about. But I'm very I'm very conscious of your time and how you allocate your time. I know that you are very precise with what you do. I've never had anybody send me an outline of here are some things we could talk about that directly relate back to Mojo. And it, it, honestly, it's just, it, it's a, it's a, it's, it's uncommon. So there you go. So we started the show with common versus uncommon. Having you a guess how you approach it, Derek is uncommon. It's such a privilege and an honor to spend time with you. Cause I know how, I know how precious and how you allocate and how you think about how you want, what you want now versus what you want most. Uh, so thank you, mate. It's just, it was fantastic. Yeah, I actually, I really like hearing from strangers around the world. It's actually part of why I do what I do and part of why I do podcasts is that I think it can be like a little beacon to hear from kindreds around the world. So yeah, anybody who listened all the way to the end of this show, please send me an email and introduce yourself. That would be everybody. So how do they find you, Derek? The people who want to speak find out more about you, find the directives. You've got some new books that you now have into the world. Where, where, Where's the hub for Derek Sivers? <laughs> you know the answer, don't you? <laughs> Sivers.org. Uh, S-I-V-E-R-S dot O-R-G is my site. And my email address is there in a big font. I don't hide it. I actually really, I really do like hearing from people that uh, introduce themselves and just say hello. So yeah, go to my site. Say hello, it's all there. Well, thank you. 
uh, we'd like to extend an invitation to you that when you decide to add Australia to Singapore, India, Belgium, England, Portugal and so on, when you finally <laughs> decide to come and spend some time here and call Australia home for a while, we promise we yeah. will record live with you on Bondi Beach in front of the famous Bondi yeah. Lifesavers Tower. We'll record yeah. with you. We'll have tea or coffee or beers or pu'er no. or beers and fish and chips I actually hold the tate um I almost moved there instead of New Zealand when I was living in Singapore and deciding oh, where to live next see? I actually looked at Bondi Beach and I was just like it actually kind of came down to that or New Zealand I I chose New Zealand but I am now a New Zealand citizen so I have the legal right to live in Australia yeah New Zealand is a special kind of place it let's is. be honest yeah we got Jacinda <laughs> Yeah, it's wonderful. Hey, I'm David Koska, international security expert and tactical trainer. After spending time on the Mojo Radio Show, I'll be filing my own report. That was cool. Worth a six-year wait. I think the thing is with all of these things is the thing I've been pondering over the break is the discipline to take the things that these guys talk about or the discipline to take the stuff that you read about in your book and then applying it. But I think the big thing I'm hearing from people like Derek or the Tim Ferriss or the Jockos, Leifs, Pat McNamara, the difference with those guys versus the rest is consistency. And Derek does his thing. I've been following him for almost a decade and he is consistently showing up. He's got his rules he knows what he wants to do. He's very, very intentional, something Colin Wright talked about in the show. He's very intentional with what he wants to do. And it's something you'll hear Ryan Hawke from the Learning Leader Show on our show talk about a lot is being very intentional and then doing it consistently. And I think the issue today is people start going really good, fall off the wagon, off the path. Oh, I've got to get back on the path. Do it again for a week and then fall off it. But I really my guys like Derek because he is consistently intentional year after year after year. I thought he was great. Okay, so I hear what you're saying and that certainly rings true about getting on the horse and falling off. You deal with people one-on-one on a daily basis who are trying to stay on the horse. Give us some tips. How do we, what do we do? How do we stay on the horse? You build your rituals. You build your routines. So you start the way you start your day. You are very intentional about having your day planned. You know what's important in your day. You know what you need, your priorities for the day. You limit your distractions. You get to the end of the day and you review your day. The night before, you plan for the following day. And if you're going to do it, get it done, limit distractions. The people who say, oh, I've got so much to do, but then spend an hour watching YouTube or spend a half an hour down the rabbit hole on their socials or spend an hour by doing something that's inconsequential to them that just waste time. And the consistency is very being very how you allocate your day. You do it the night before. You're very intentional. You focus around what's important to you, what has to get done as a priority in all areas of your life. If you go back to your book review, priorities, the night before you plan, where's my reading time? Where's my thinking time? Where's my family time? Where's my me time? If it's playing with the dog, if it's working a particular project and you block out all other things and get it done and compartmentalize. And we've got a few guys coming up on the show that are going to talk through this. The famous David Allen who wrote Getting Things Done, 30 years at the top of his game about planning 
a guy called Charlie Gilkey wrote a book called Start Finishing. Excellent book about how do you actually finish? Because we start a lot of things, but then we don't finish. So my thing is build your rituals, build your routines, be intentional, plan the night before, limit the distractions. When you're focusing, just do that. And at the end of the day, review what you've done. Do what Christian Bacuse has talked about. What did I set out to, to achieve? What happened? What was the reason? What will I do differently? And it keeps going back to it. And, you know, as Charlie Gilkey talks about in his book, we don't need an accountability partner to eat ice cream, but we, have an, we need an accountability partner to keep us on track for these things because we lack, we lack discipline. We lack planning and intentionality. And that, does, that leads us down to having a lack of focus uh, and a lack of consistency. So I think all these things we're talking about, and there are a lot of people do it, but there's a lot more people don't, sadly. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Nice. A few plans of action there. The Mojo Radio Show. So the one thing with podcasts, people are consuming a lot of stuff. And I spoke to a guy who drives a lot. And he's consuming podcasts, reading blogs, not as many books. But he might he might listen to an audio book, but he's still not on the path. And the reason was he that he wasn't applying it. And the thing for me with podcasts, books, blogs, videos, whatever you're choosing to use to improve yourself, is <laughs> this goes back to it may not be a lesson of rock. Maybe let's call it a lesson of music or a lesson of one-hit wonders. Oh, no, no. But Here see we go. if you can pick who the artists are in this clip. Lola? I'm too sexy for my love, too sexy for my love, love's going to leave me. Do you know who the artists are on that track? Well, the first one, <laughs> come on, who doesn't know that song? Right said Fred, I'm Too Sexy. What a great song. I was bopping to that at the Blue Light Disco when I was 18. Uh, and the other one, I believe, uh, after extensive experience doing imaging for contemporary hit radio stations, would be Taylor Swift. Correct, on both accounts. Now, what I found interesting about that is that somebody had written as a blog uh, but what I found really interesting is I think it's so true with anything we consume is rather than copy what any of our guests do or anybody that you read a book or you see a video or listen to a podcast, rather than copy it, take the best of the best but then <laughs> apply it to your own world. Now, I like the fact that Wright said Fred, who's only had, I think it's fair one. to say he's probably a one-hit wonder. <laughs> But I like the fact that he stayed true to himself, but then he's incorporated Taylor Swift and that track into his own music to create something new. So my point is that we listen to stuff and then we want to, we want to be that person. We want to replicate. We want to have the alter ego of that person, which is good. My thing is take the best of the best from all the people you see, but then apply it. And that comes back to the question you had about well, how do we stay on track? It's the night before planet. Take all the best of the best, routines, rituals, be very intentional. 
How will you capture those ideas? Be intentional the night before. How am I going to execute them into my day? Review your day, plan for the next day and keep it in front of you all the time. I don't know. I just like the fact that Rudd said, Fred said, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to not plagiarize, but I'm going to take the best of the best. You, can, you can't deny Taylor Swift's success. I'd, I didn't know. I didn't know the track, so I wouldn't have picked it. But you, with your musical tastes, obviously you're a Taylor Swift. You're a, Swift, oh, a, a Swifty. High rotation in the studio. You know that. Now, listen, I'd like to do a quick gone but not forgotten if you'll indulge me. Yep. Well, if we go back 30-odd years to the start of my career, there was a gentleman by the name of Grant Goldman who a lot of Australian people will probably know. Uh, he was a well-renowned breakfast host on countless stations around the country. He was also the first host of Countdown, a very popular Australian music TV show. Um, he's had cancer for many years and unfortunately over the break, uh, he passed away. And I would just like to publicly say what a loss it is, not just for the media itself. For me personally, the guy was a great friend. He got me my start in the career. He got me into the office of the guy who gave me my first radio job. So he, he's the guy to blame. <laughs> he is to blame. And he was also a goddamn nice guy. He was the ground announcer for the Mighty Sea Eagles down at Brookvale Oval, a, an Australian rugby league team. The voice of Val Morgan cinema advertising. He voiced the trains, the next train on platform, blah, blah, blah. Amazing, amazing guy. So I'd just like to pass on my thoughts and condolences to his family first and foremost. And secondly, unfortunately, all too late, just say again, because I know I know he knew it, but again, just say thank you for everything. I, I'm sure, 100% sure I wouldn't be where I am today if it wasn't for Grant. So what song would you like to dedicate to Grant? Well, I'm fairly sure it was his favourite song. If not, it was certainly up there because every time I would walk into the on-air studio and it was playing, he would have it cranked to 11. Uh, the Doobie Brothers, China Grove, I reckon is the perfect way for us to get out. Season 7, Episode 1, Just For You, Grant.
The Mojo Radio Show is produced and recorded in the basement of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at The Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. To help us get better and give more people the opportunity to touch up their mojo, you can now find us on Patreon. Follow the links on the front page of our website and for a coffee or two a month, you'll get regular bonus material and a copy of Explosive Hits 19, the best of the Mojo Radio Show. In the meantime, to polish your next audio production, check out voodoosound.com.au. For more about Gary, see garybirtwhistle.com. And to book me, go to andrewpeters.com. Andrew Peters speaking. See you next time.